Romans 14, we're going to be uh, looking at um, verses 5 through 12 this morning, and uh, but I'm going to read from verse 1 to 12, just to give us a little bit of context where we looked at last week, or I guess it was two weeks ago. Um, so Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld till the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, and we come before you acknowledging that under Christ we are one. He is our Lord. And Lord, we pray that by your word and by the Lordship of Christ that you would cause us to want to live according to your word all the more. Lord, that you would help us to be hearers of your word those who understand your word and those who seek to live by your word. Unify us in Christ this morning and give us a mind and a heart to receive your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, several weeks ago, I think it was two weeks ago or so, um, we looked at the first four verses of Romans 14. <clears throat> and we saw uh, that the strong Christian... The one, really, if you weren't here, that the strong Christian is the one who, who has more liberty, right, in regards to their conscience. And the, the strong Christian, the exhortation given to them is to not despise the weaker Christian or the weaker brother or sister. Now, the weaker brother or sister is one whose conscience prohibits him from participating in certain activities. So it doesn't mean that the weaker Christian is somehow a less godly Christian. It has everything to do with one's conscience. Now, the weaker Christian, Paul says, is not to judge his brother or sister who feels a certain level of liberty when it comes to specific disputable issues. So instead of despising and judging one another over these disputable issues, we're called to welcome and embrace one another as children of God, just as God welcomed and embraced us in Christ. Now, when we're thinking of disputable matters, um, we're thinking in the categories of specific things that God doesn't prohibit. 
but that Christians can come to different conclusions and convictions on. So, for example, in verse 2 in the Romans church, there was a difference of opinion over what one should eat or not eat, right? That was a disputable issue in the Roman church, primarily based upon the, the, the differences between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. Now, we a few weeks ago, off the top of our heads, attempted to list off a bunch of potential disputable issues in our cultural context. Do you remember any of those issues that we listed off? If not, can you try to say them again? That were potential ones. So one was alcohol, right? Some Christians, lots of liberty when it comes to enjoying alcohol, whereas for other Christians, for them it would be personal, personally sin for them to do so. But there are other things. Diet. Diet, yeah, absolutely. Um, homeschooling, public school, Christian school. There are some Christians who have very strong convictions about those things, right? Certain political differences, um, public health care versus private health care, um, vaccines, right? We saw that that's probably the hot topic of the day um, where there are many Christians who are very for it and there are many Christians who are very much against it or have concerns about it. Whether that was before COVID, it's only grown because of COVID, right? Um, and so as Christians, there's a, there's, a little, there's a level of freedom in regards to these topics to choose whether I do or not do in regards to these different things. So a disputable matter would be something that the Bible doesn't prohibit, but as Christians, as a Christian, you might come to a different conviction than your brother or sister about that specific thing. And so, of course, the example was that of alcohol that I used a few weeks ago. Um, So let's just say this. So alcohol, um, so for some Christians, it would be wrong for them to drink alcohol, right? Their conscience won't allow them. Other Christians feel a sense of liberty, right? And a freedom. And, and, and really, they, they happily and joyfully enjoy a glass of wine to the glory of God. And the reason why alcohol is a disputable matter is because God doesn't prohibit the drinking of alcohol. I know some Christians have tried to argue that, but you can't find it in the Bible, <laughs> There are warnings in Scripture about the possible dangers, but there's also references to the goodness of alcohol, that God has given it for our enjoyment. See, what the Bible condemns, what isn't a disputable matter, is drunkenness, right? God condemns drunkenness, but he does not condemn drinking in and of itself. So Christians come to different conclusions on on these different disputable issues. And Paul's solution or God's solution isn't that you and I would agree upon all of these different issues. Rather, Paul's solution is don't judge or despise each other and rather welcome one another in Christ, right? Now, just for clarity, what might be something that um, isn't a disputable matter, but there are some professing Christians who claim that it is a disputable matter? What might be some things that isn't a disputable matter, but some people claim to be a disputable matter? Any thoughts? Pedo baptism. Pedo baptism, yeah, absolutely. Female preachers. Female preachers, yeah, yeah. So some would some would argue it's not a it's not really a disputable matter. Um, now I would argue that that Christians who believe that women can be elders or ordained. 
Um, they're still my brothers and sisters in Christ, right? But I probably wouldn't go to their church because I, I think the scripture makes it very clear, right? For um, specifically. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what else? Prosperity gospel. Prosperity, uh, yeah, that, yeah, that's definitely not a suitable matter. <laughs> um, I, I, think, I think some of the, the, uh, the sexual issues of our day. Um, there are many professing Christians who want to uh, place, for example, homosexuality within the category of, of a disputable matter. In other words, uh, the Bible's not clear on this issue, and so we as Christians can agree to disagree, but we can still be unified in Christ. Uh, whereas I would say, no, the Bible is explicitly clear on this issue. This is not something that God has, has uh, not prohibited. God has prohibited any kind of sexual morality outside of the context of covenant marriage between a man and a woman is forbidden by God. Um, but there are many professing Christians saying that, that, that that's almost like a three-tier topic, right? You have, you have the first priorities, right? The gospel, the trinity, then you got secondary issues like the life of the church, and then you got third issues that we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be uh, divided over. And I would argue that that's not a third issue. That, that is probably second, probably first issue because it has to do with what God requires of his people when it comes to holiness. So, so those are some things that, that, are, are, that some professing Christians would say is a disputable matter, but the Bible would actually make clear that it's actually not a disputable matter. So in verse two, Paul addresses the issue of food, right? Clearly there was division happening in the Roman church over food. And then in verse five, a second issue that was disrupting the unity of the church in Rome appears. And Paul says in verse 5, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So just as there were Christians in the Roman church who had deferring convictions over food, so there's Christians having deferring convictions over certain days. Now, this specific context, uh, what would have been the, the days or the day that they were disputing over? Saturday versus Sunday. Saturday versus Sunday, yeah. So, so you would have had Jewish Christians who would have strongly had the conviction that, that they still needed to keep the Sabbath on Saturday, right? But then you also probably have Jewish Christians who, in light of the coming of Christ and him rising from the dead on the Sunday, the Lord's Day, they no longer feel any obligation to follow the Sabbath. They're now committed to the Lord's Day. And then, of course, you also have Gentile believers who would have treated every day alike. So within the Roman church, you got issues over food because uh, some Jewish Christians are, have, have, have chosen to become vegetarians because they don't know if the meat they're getting in Rome is kosher. And, and now you have disagreement over whether or not you should keep the Sabbath or not keep the Sabbath. Now, What's Paul's exhortation that Paul gives in verse 5 about this issue? What's the exhortation that he gives? Each one should be convinced in his own mind. Each person should be convinced in his own mind. Mm. Now, sometimes it's important to note what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say... You as a church need to sit down and come to a conclusion over this disputable issue. Give your time and energy to figuring out this issue, figuring this issue out so that all of you as a church would have the same conviction over whether or not the Sabbath should be kept. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say that. Yet I think some Christians 
think that that's, that's what we need to do. We need to, as a church, offer times where in which we can always be debating these disputable issues so that we can come to a conclusion and have uniformity around that specific issue. But that's not Paul's solution to the issue. Also, Paul's not saying that it's okay to be delusional. Be convinced in your own mind. That's not what he's saying, right? Rather, he's addressing certain topics that one person can have legitimate reasons for coming to a different conclusion than another person. Further, he's also not saying who's right or wrong in their conviction. In one sense, it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. In verses 1 to 4, Paul's solution to these disputable matters is deciding not to judge or despise one brother, one's brother or sister, not, and, and, and it's not to conclude who's right or wrong. And here, Paul tells them that over these disputable matters, each person should be convinced in their own mind. So if you believe that the Sabbath is a sacred day, then believe it and live by it. If you believe all days are alike, then believe it and live by it. If you believe that vaccines are good, then believe it and live by it. If you believe that vaccines are not good, then believe it and live by it. God bless you either way. <laughs> and you know why Paul can say this? It's because Paul believes that both individuals are living by those convictions in honor and worship of the Lord. That's what he says in verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So both the participant and both the abstainer are seeking to honor the Lord. They both share the same purpose and aim in the participation and in their abstaining, whether it's alcohol or whether it's a, a holy day, whatever it may be, both are participating and abstaining in their worship and thankfulness to God. So here's what we have to see here. Paul assumes the best of both groups, even if they're not deserving of that assumption. Paul assumes the best of both groups. He assumes that both groups of individuals are doing what they're doing in worship to the Lord, which means that to judge or despise your brother or sister for their freedom or their restraint is to actually stand in judgment for how they worship God. It's actually to criticize their worship of God. That if they abstain from alcohol and you despise them for that, they're abstaining it in honor of the Lord, you're actually judging their worship. That if they have a glass of wine with their dinner and you judge them for that, you are actually judging them for their worship to God. See, here's the reality. In our everyday lives, there's a diversity when it comes to how we honor or worship and give thanks to God. God's solution is not uniformity in the details of the Christian life. Michael Haken says this, uniformity is not God's way in the details of the Christian life. If this be true, it frees us to follow God wholly and not be tied to human expectations. It also acts as a break on Christians who wish to bind the consciences of fellow believers in areas where liberty must be granted. 
In other words, realizing the truth of this remark enables us to live in love. So those who abstain and those who participate are both doing so in the honor of the Lord. At least that ought to be the reason a Christian is either abstaining or participating in honor of the Lord. So in verse 5 to 6, Paul demonstrates that, the both, that both the weak Christian and the strong Christian in their convictions are seeking to worship the Lord. Now in verse 7 to 9, Paul gives his theological explanation for why each person does what they do in honor of the Lord. And you see this with the connecting word at the beginning of verse 7, right? For, that is because of, or because none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For, if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Now there's a lot here um, to unpack, so I'm just going to kind of give you the big idea. But, but here's the big idea that Paul's articulating in verse 7 and 9. Because Christ died and rose again and has become Lord of our lives, we no longer as Christians live our lives for self, but for Christ. Therefore, the person who abstains and the person who participates does so unto the Lord. That's the logic. That's what Paul's saying in verse 7 to 8. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, for we live for a greater purpose, namely Jesus. Our living is for the Lord and our dying is for the Lord. Everything we do as Christians is to be done unto the Lord, whether it's in our living or in our dying. Now, I think there are two texts in Scripture that help us to get at what Paul's articulating here when he says, we live to the Lord and we die to the Lord. The first is 1 Corinthians 10, 31. It's a famous verse that many Christians know. Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is the, the mindset of the Christian, that, that whether you're playing a sport, whether you're enjoying a glass of wine, whether you're spending time with friends, whether you're watching a movie, whatever it is, you are seeking to do so in honor of the Lord by giving thanks to God for the things that he provides for us to enjoy, like that glass of wine or like that movie. So, as a Christian, you don't live for self, you do all to the glory of God. The other text, which I think help bring, helps bring clarity, is Philippians 1, 20-21, where Paul, who's in prison, he, he talks about how he wants Christ to be honored in his body, and then he says, whether by life or by death, which is very similar language here in Romans 14, right? We live to the Lord and we die to the Lord. I want to see Christ honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So, so Paul's way of life was driven by his supreme desire to see Christ honored in his living and in his dying. In other words, how you approach living and how you approach dying demonstrates that you're living to the Lord and not self. And here, the way in which Paul dies to the Lord is by seeing death as gain. See, Paul here in Romans 14 is making a huge distinction between a believer and an unbeliever on how they approach life and death. 
The unbeliever in their living and dying, their decision-making, has no regard for the honor of the Lord. Whereas the believer in everything is always asking, how can I honor the Lord? How can I honor the Lord in my living? How can I honor the Lord in my dying? So the strong Christian participates and the weak abstains in honor of the Lord because both are living for the Lord. But not only that, Paul also says that we both belong to the Lord. That's what he alludes to at the end of verse 8. For, none, uh, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. And then look at the, the, the change in language. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So on the one hand, we, we live to the Lord, but on the other hand, we actually are the Lord's. We belong to the Lord. It's not simply that we, we are seeking to live for the Lord as followers of Jesus. It's also that we actually belong to him. Both the weak and the strong Christian belong to Christ. And the reason this is so is because Christ has become our Lord by his dying and rising, as verse 9 indicates. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So he died and rose from the dead in order that we would belong to him and give him our allegiance. And all of this is Paul's reasoning for why the weak Christian can observe the Sabbath in honor of the Lord and why the strong Christian can treat all days alike in honor of the Lord. The Lordship of Christ is what unifies us, not uniformity over disputable issues. That's the point Paul's making here. What unifies you and I is the Lordship of Jesus Christ, not agreement on disputable issues. So, Paul gives his theological rationale for why each should be convinced in their own mind and why each can both participate and abstain in honor of the Lord. But then in verse 10, he returns to his exhortation. And it really follows the same logic that Paul articulates in verse 4. Right? In verse 4, he says, why are, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. It's very similar language here in verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God, so that each of us will give an account of himself to God. So once again, Paul reminds us, just like in verse 4, that there is one judge, one master, and each of us will give, it, give an account of himself to God, and therefore we don't need to act as God in our brother or sister's life when it comes to these disputable issues. And notice how all-encompassing this is, right? Four times he alludes to this, this all-encompassing reality, right? So in, in verse 10 you have, for we will all stand before the judgment seat, of God. Then in verse 11, he says, every knee shall bow, then every tongue. And then in verse 12, you have each of us will give of himself an account to God. So all, every, every, and each of us. All of us will stand before God and give an account to him. And therefore, we don't need to be God in each other's lives. 
Now, it's interesting, Paul quotes Isaiah 45, verse 23, in verse 11, which Jim read for us earlier. And the context of Isaiah 45, 23 helps us see just how fitting this text is to what Paul is addressing. The context of Romans 5, or Romans 45, demonstrates God's unique sovereignty over all creation, that he alone is the Lord of the universe, to whom every person will give an account. And because of that, Paul is saying, who are you to judge your brother or your sister? So what are some principles we can take from these truths? Well, the first is this. We need to strive to assume that our brother or sister, their conduct and behavior is being motivated by a sense of thanksgiving and a desire to honor the Lord. In other words, you and I ought to assume the best of each other. When Kathy enjoys that glass of wine in the warm summer weather, we ought to assume the best of her motives. When Grace says, I will not drink alcohol because it would be sin for me, we ought to assume the best of her, that she's not some crazy legalist, but that she genuinely wants to honor the Lord with her life. And in the same way, we ought to not assume that Kathy just wants to live a worldly life. <laughs> assume the best of your brother and sister. Secondly, examine your own life and wrestle with the question, do I live all of life with the mindset of, for the sake of the Lord? Do I live all of life with the mindset of, to the glory of God? Or, put it in the negative, what areas of my living are being driven by living for self rather than Christ? What areas of my living are being driven by living for self rather than Christ? And then thirdly, I would say this, err on the side of grace and not judgment, for no one will escape God's judgment. I think we're prone to err on the side of judgment rather than grace. But I think as Christians, we can err on the side of grace because we know that every single one of us will give an account before God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we do ask that you would make this true of us, that you would help us by your spirit to truly assume the best of each other. Lord, it's so easy in our sinful hearts to see a brother or sister do something and always assume the worst. Help us to assume the best. Lord, I also pray that you would help us to truly conform all of our lives to living for the glory of Christ and not for self. That when we enjoy that glass of wine or when we abstain from that glass of wine, that we would do it with the right motives, that we are doing this in thankfulness and praise to you for the goodness of your creation. Lord, I pray that all of our lives would truly be surrendered to you, that in our living and our dying, we would live unto you. And I also do pray, Lord, that you would help us to err on the side of grace and not judgment, that we would be far more eager to show grace and mercy to each other than judgment just as Christ was eager to show us mercy and grace when we were deserving of judgment. Help us in this, Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.